0: My name is Fatima Asker. I'm a writer and a filmmaker, and my debut novel is called When We Were Sisters.
1: Fatima Asker is a filmmaker, educator, and performer. They are the writer and co creator of Brown Girls, an Emmy nominated web series that highlights friendships between women of color. And Asker is a poet, publishing a debut collection titled If They Come For Us. It's this last descriptor which is least surprising, as the story told through their debut novel, When We Were Sisters, is lyrical, experimental, and quite moving. The novel explores the interlocking ties between three Muslim American sisters who, after their parents die, are left to raise one another in a country whose systems were not designed to protect them. Although the novel is just being released today, October 18th, it's already been long-listed for the National Book Award and the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. I recently spoke with Fatima Asker about their debut novel. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. When We Were Sisters is a novel, but it's, it's not traditional or typical in its structure. Could you give our listeners a brief description of the book?
0: Yeah. So I think this is so interesting because everyone has been asking me, like, what is the book about? And I'm like, you know, it's such a hard question. And I think that the book is less about anything as more as it is very about the experience of these characters. And so it really follows three siblings who are Pakistani and Muslim and are orphaned quite young. And it really is told a lot through the perspective of the youngest. Her name is Kosar and through uh, like the experiences of her day-to-day life, her understanding of herself, her gender, her family, and things like love and, you know, autonomy and gender and sexuality and desire. And so really What you're kind of seeing a window and a look into is a character who has experienced a tremendous amount of early grief and neglect, try to figure out how to love in a world that can be very, very cruel to them.
1: So let's talk about the sisters. I loved the way you described their names. And this is when we learn like exactly whose perspective we are seeing um, at this moment. And the quote is, Aisha, her name all curves, barely a consonant. Noreen, a hard end, and my name Kosar, so tough it starts with a pinch. I'm always curious about character development, so talk to me about how you approached the three sisters.
0: Yeah, so I think a lot of you know, again, it's seen through Kosar's eyes, so you're kind of getting Kosar's impression of her sisters and and of of them. But there's a lot of kind of you know, in the beginning, this kind of thing of them all being so close that. They kind of morph into each other a little bit sometimes. And then the more that they grow up and into themselves, the ways that they really differentiate and how different they can become. And, you know, there's a kind of almost like harshness or meanness that exists in all of them. But it's all very, very different. Like it's all characterized very differently for each of the sisters. And there's also these really deep, tender moments for all of them that are all also really different. And so for me, it was thinking about, you know, the pressures that each one of them had that were unique to them, you know, Noreen being the eldest and Aisha being the one in the middle, but the one that's like kind of trying the most to hold this family unit together. And then Kosar being the youngest and in some ways, the kind of a sponge or catch-all for so many different feelings. And so, there really was a way in which, in terms of the characterization, it wasn't only just like the things that they like to do and what's different about them and what's similar about them, but also the roles that they play in their family and how different that is for each one of them based on their positioning as eldest, middle, and youngest.
1: Okay, so I want to talk about family for a minute. The girls are orphans, as you said. When their father is murdered, their mother has already passed. There's a quote In the math of what is considered family, me and my sisters are left out. And then later, another quote says, you know, what no one will ever understand is that the world belongs to orphans. Everything becomes our mother. And then later, still, I need help. I need an adult. And I don't know how to get one. So these quote unquote sisters were orphaned more than once, weren't they?
0: Yeah, I think that that's kind of a big metaphor through the book is, how the sisters are not only orphaned by their father dying and their mother already being dead they're orphaned time and time again they're orphaned by you know these families and these strangers that take care of them for a while that they form bonds and attachments to and then who disappear or who leave or who are forced out or no longer available or accessible to them they're orphaned by each other in some ways and They're orphaned, you know, again, by the moments where they have these very deep human needs for an adult as you're growing up and there's no one around. So they're orphaned a lot by neglect. And so I think in this work, especially in terms of thinking about orphaning, not only as a practice that happens, but also as a metaphor, is the ways that orphaning isn't a one-time thing, but a thing that is consistent and kind of happens over and over again, especially when we're in societies that are really, really structured around a parental unit and a nuclear family. And so I think that there's a, you know, a part in the book where closer says something like I had a family, see, it had to count for something, you know, or I had a family, something along those lines. And the idea being that like, look, I had this thing once and I had this love and didn't it count? Even when it was taken from me or when it was gone, didn't it count for something? And so I think that that really is the kind of cycle that we see Gosar really in, is the consistent orphaning that is happening to her at all moments, um, not only just in the immediate aftermath of her father
1: dying. Yeah, that page only has four lines, and one is barely a line. But I have the whole thing underlined, and I, the only reason <laughs> I didn't quote it is because I didn't know if I could get away with saying f- on air. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I used air quotes a minute ago, and you know, when I mentioned the description of of sisters, because they talk about being sisters or brothers or sister mothers, and maybe the title "When We Were Sisters" comes into play here. I'm not sure, but talk to me about this idea of being more than sisters. Yeah, so I think
0: that because they're orphans, because these three siblings are orphans, there's a way in which they are put into certain roles that go beyond just the idea of traditional siblings, right? So because there aren't a lot of consistent caretakers around, because they need to defend themselves against the adults that are around them, because they need to constantly stand up for themselves, and because they're constantly put in precarious situations that most children, or we would like to think most children don't experience, there's a way that they become adults quite quickly. And there's also a way that they have to take care of each other and themselves quite quickly. And so there's a way that they go beyond just being sisters. They become this kind of amorphous thing where they become each other's everything. And then there's also this moment in terms of the title around like when we were sisters, where it really calls into question and it interrogates the idea of what are our assumed definitions of sisterhood? What are our assumed definitions of sisters? And what happens when you have that idea in your head of what you think it is, but then your lived reality and your experience isn't living up to it. And so in some ways, I think the book really interrogates the idea of sister and of sistering and of sisterhood and calls for one that is specific. And one that is unique to the situation that they are in and the situation that arises that they are in. And so therefore goes beyond traditional ideas of what we think of that term.
1: You know, the novel is, is a bit coming of age, maybe. But more than that, you know, enveloped in that coming of age timeline, the sisters must also figure out how to process grief. And at one point, it seems like grief itself was a character. You know, was it? Yeah,
0: I think so. (laughs) I think that grief is a huge character in this book in the same way that I think orphaning is a character, right? I think that there's ways that some of these emotions kind of take on their own life. And I think that when you're young and you aren't really taught how to process your emotions but they're there and they're big they can become a life of their own and they can become a story and a narrative of their own and so i think in that way this is why grief kind of occupies so much space and has this space is because it's very untreated. It's very unacknowledged a lot in a lot of their day-to-day life and a lot of times suppressed and and put down. And so when it does come out, it becomes its own own vortex. It becomes its own place that it wants to occupy and being that it wants to occupy.
1: You know, you mentioned how grief takes up so much space. And at one point, Kosar thinks if I had a superpower, I'd make more space. Have you thought about this question for yourself? What would you want your superpower to be?
0: I mean, my honest answer <laughs> is that I would want to speak like every single language. I think that that is like really the superpower that I would want is the ability to communicate and to be in to be able to speak all all these different languages. But I think that that's right is like in the book. Kosar is saying if I was a superhero, I'd make more space. Like if I had this thing, I could do this because that's so desperately what they need is they need more space and they're right up pushed up pressed up right against each other and that's for a lot of reasons that's for neglect that's for the circumstances their living circumstances that's for lack of money lack of resources things like that but they're really really kind of pushed up on each other and when they're pushed up on each other like that they don't really have enough space to just be themselves and to let go and to process and to have their own identities even, and their own kind of skin that's outside of each other.
1: How many languages do you speak? Not that many. I mean, <laughs> the
0: only one that I speak really fluently is English, and then I can understand Urdu and Punjabi um, a bit. I just grew up hearing it, but I have a very hard time speaking it. And then a little bit of Spanish and a little bit of Arabic.
1: Talk to me about Kosar who thinks at one point, quote, my body split, my love pretend, me pretending to be a girl for him. Me, not a girl. Me, not a boy. My tether to two misshapen bodies. So I'm curious. You know, one, what are Kosar's pronouns? And also, can you talk to me about Kosar's? And I'm using quotes here. Other me. Yes. So
0: Kosar's pronouns by the end of the book. You know, Kosar is still like pretending to be a girl. So is like going by she pronouns but i think that the kind of gender queerness and non-binariness that coser operates in is so beautiful because it's beautiful in the ways that it's specific to coser and i think that there's so much to me of my own experience of queerness is what kind of goes beyond categorization right and so what what these big terms allow and how they can be freeing and how they can be freeing in that way and how sometimes they resist definition. And so Gosler's experience of the world is not one of being a girl. Like she's saying that, you know, very clearly throughout the book. And yet she's like quite kind of at a moment where she's not quite brave enough or not quite in the moment where she can really claim another identity. So she's like, I'm not this, but I'm pretending to be this. And so in terms of her pronouns, you know, she uses she. Sometimes I use they when I talk about Kosar, but I think for Kosar, it's very fluid. It's a she, it's a they, but ultimately, it's an articulation of a non binariness that is deeply, deeply true and deeply felt in Kosar and not always expressed externally for that character. And then, in terms of Goser's other me's, there's a lot of moments in the book where we see the fragmentation of something that happens with Goser, usually around a moment of deep trauma or deep inner reflection, and the kind of ways that Goser projects or will will fragment from part of herself in an attempt to survive, in an attempt to cope. And really, it's a lot of dissociation, a lot of being in a moment of extreme vulnerability, and needing to figure out a way forward that allows Goser to survive. And so there's a lot of me's that Gosar abandons. There's a lot of me's that Gosar has that leap out and that Gosar doesn't integrate back into her being. And so in part, when she talks about being full of so many holes or walking around and feeling like, you know, misshapen. And and like, it's very difficult for her to kind of collect herself. In part, it's because of all of the fragmentation, the soul fragmentation that she's experienced and that has been left throughout her life.
1: I want to talk a bit about structure. So talk to me about, you know, like the uncle's redacted name and how you chose to write him, the, the father's story in verse and her, the mother's story And even the beautiful, like the sisters' visuals on pages like 291 and 314. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. So, you know, maybe choose which ones you would like to address. Yeah, for the uncle's redacted
0: name, I I did that for several reasons. I think for me, it made it feel closer. So it made it feel less like it was fiction and a character that you could write off and more like something that you could see in a redacted report or something that you would see in a kind of probably like a child services report or something like that. And because it allows for the reader to graft whatever name they feel comes up. So I think that a lot of readers will have the experience of reading this book and seeing that redaction and instantly thinking of a name. That name is going to be very specific to each of those readers. So I think that it allowed for a certain kind of closeness as well as a certain kind of fear. It really captivates the fear that I think Gosar has towards this man and the fear that the siblings have, right? That there's a kind of deep, deep fear and resistance and even touch to the name. And so those are the reasons why I chose to do that for the uncle and to have that be redacted. And then on a very different note with the father's name being bracketed and being space is kind of, you know, a similar concept in that you don't know the name, but what it does is it shows the continuing of absence and how hard it is to reach for that space of death and how hard it is to reach for even a name or that space, a father's name You know, when you're that young and someone has died and you're kind of all it is or or what it just becomes is space and absence. And so both of those were very, very intentional choices around doing that and around the kind of experience a reader might garnish from seeing that on
1: the page. So this novel is about family. This novel is about grief. This novel is about gender. This is also a novel about race. You know, the color brown is prominently mentioned throughout. Can you talk to me about the role race plays in the book? Yeah, I mean, I think that race
0: is a huge thing in the book and also deeply subtle in some ways because it is the embodiment of these characters. These characters are in their bodies and their in, in how they walk through the world. They are brown and they are South Asian and they are brown skinned girls that walk through the world, you know? And so they're treated in some ways like in other, and they're treated in these ways where they're mitigated first through their race before anything else. But they're also trying to understand what it means to be them in a world where that isn't the dominant identity trait that's around them, like not, you know, where they are a racial minority and there's not a lot of people who look like them, you know, in in the dominant society or who are so who are easily understood by dominant society. And the ways in which they are learning about their own history, like not through textbooks or classrooms, but through a kind of wild experiential learning of what it means to be in their body. And to me, that feels really accurate for what it feels like and what it felt like to grow up as a brown person in America, right? It was like, you had this really deep racialized experience. And yet I wasn't really being taught that like through like, oh, well, this is your history or this is your culture. This is where you come from. Like it wasn't being taught that way. It was just, my experience of living and then catching things, catching stray stories like in a in a family members kind of brief aside about something and being like, wait, what is that? You know, and and I think that that is so much of my experience growing up. And I think so much of many people's experience growing up and the ways that we're kind of taught our histories almost through the margins rather than through, you know, through a direct path even though our bodies are quite literally the direct path towards our histories, you know, our experiences and our and our ideas of race.
1: In your acknowledgments, you thank other writers. Can you talk to me about some of the works that inspired you? You know, for example, talk to me about maybe Lord of the Flies, why you return to it again and again, especially given that one of the sections is titled A Lord of Fly.
0: So all of those books that I named in the acknowledgments are books that I could not have written this book without. And I think that, you know, there is this really deep American myth of the individual and individualism, you know, and to me, honestly, it also, there's a very deep American myth of the orphan. I think there's a lot of American literature that's obsessed with the idea of the orphan. And in part, it's because it's like, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you don't have a history, and then you make it work throughout, despite all odds. You know, it's a very, very intoxicating metaphor. And it is completely, as an orphan, I can say, untrue. <laughs> you know, you are, it's it's impossible to go through this world on your own. And it's impossible to go through this world without deep influence, community, community, You know, absorption of others' ideas and absorption of other influence. You know, and I'm grateful for that. I wouldn't want it to be another way. I don't believe in that myth of individualism. And so, with William Golding's *Lord of the Flies*, like I remember reading that book and the kind of way that it showed the feralness of humans when unwatched. You know, when when like put in a really dark corner, what could happen? You know, and I think about that a lot. And with this book, I felt that way. Like, I was like, there is a kind of ferality that these siblings occupy. And it's because they're really backed into a corner. And so a lot of times, a lot of people will not understand that. But it's because they are so backed into a corner and so kind of in survival mode for so much of the book that there's a lot of situations that they're just put in that kind of invoke a kind of ferality and it's not the same thing as William Golding's like they're stranded on a plane and they're you know they're in nature like they're in a city they're in this thing but the city can be feral as well you know and I think that that was um, a, a real thing that I wanted to encapsulate and then even the the idea of like you know that section Alora to Fly um, the kind of metaphors that I think I just sat with and and thought a lot of and have sat with for a long time from reading um you know lord of the flies and and just beyond that and kind of extrapolating that metaphor into my kind of own thing in this book but this idea of how goseph will kind of think of herself and her own life as like fly you know like a little fly and kind of thinking of everything else as like a lord or everything else as like magnificent and not being able to see that in her own self.
1: It was recently announced that When We Were Sisters was long listed for the National Book Award and also for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. So first of all, congratulations.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Now, it's almost astounding that this is your first novel because it's so well done. But it's also, you know, not surprising to me that you're a poet because that is evident on every page. So how did your previous writing experience prepare you for writing this novel?
0: Yeah, I mean, thank you so much. And yeah, I've been a poet for a very long time and it really is one of my real rock beds of love and of deep joy. And I think spending so long thinking about syntax, thinking about word, thinking about lyric, thinking about choice on the page and also developing an ethos around how to tell certain stories and what kind of stories or like, what, what does tenderness mean even in hardship? What does care look like? And learning from other poets, you know, in that way has been deeply influential in my work. And I really felt like this is my first time ever really like writing fiction. And, and it really was like, I was like, whoa, I'm just in it, you know, um, like all artistic practice builds on itself. So even my poetry and my screenwriting and my directing, like they all influenced this book and my book influences them, you know, this novel influences them. And so it is a debut and it's also within a body of work, you know, and it's in a, and it's also within a life. It's like a lot, you know, me and my friends were joking about this, but we were like, you know, a book is a book and everyone tasted at that, but a book is an entire life and it's an entire life that you kind of really, really craft and hone in order to be digestible to other human beings. And that is something that is also so deep in terms of the process
1: of it as well. What is your hope readers will take away from this novel?
0: You know, I hope so many things. I hope that they these characters are just so deeply flawed and yet so deeply lovable, every single one of them, including the ones that cause incredible harm. And I think that I hope that readers will take away the nuance of that, like the nuance of how much these characters are so human and so deeply worthy and deserving of love and of care and extend that to their own selves. Like, I think that I really hope that readers will be able to understand or at least maybe feel from this book like that in themselves, like even the parts of them that are maybe mean, or maybe not the best, or maybe the ones that are backed up in the corners and are acting out like, is there a tenderness and softness that they can hold for those parts as well? Is there tenderness and softness that they can hold for others? And just how, how deeply you know, fragile everyone is. Like, Everyone at every moment is just operating with such fragility and humans are just so deserving of care and what happens when we move at such a breakneck speed. And people get lost in that system. And that hopefully folks can move with a little a little more care because of the
1: tenderness of some of these characters. The book is When We Were Sisters. Fatima Askar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. That was Fatima Askar, author of the book When We Were Sisters, which was published by One World. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.